Though we remain ignorant of the fact, most of the time, we have some seriously faulty faculties. A faculty is not just somebody working at a school. <laughs> it's an inherent mental or physical power. And faulty means working badly or unreliably because of imperfections. I realize that there are very few people who would openly claim perfection in any area. We do behave as if one faculty is never wrong. Strangely, it's the faculty that we lean on the hardest as our standard of judgment. And I know we all know that we have no business judging other people. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. Our culture, our world has been saturated. Race consciousness has been saturated with the fact that we really have no business judging other people. Yet, it doesn't seem to make any difference at all when it comes to judging other people. So this is another case of knowing better and acting worse. When we have this huge body of knowledge, but we have this very tiny being that can't support even a little bit of the great knowledge that we have gathered. And so this is obviously the reason that, well, it may not be obvious, but it is the reason why people continue judging, knowing that they have no business judging. And so we're back to the whole idea of, well, we know better and we act worse, which really doesn't change much of anything. That, unfortunately, becomes just another bit of knowledge that we add to our great body of knowledge. And then we're stuck with this little tiny being and this huge body of knowledge that we drag around with this little tiny being. Now, a quick look at the world can convince us, if we look at it even slightly objectively, that people are certain that they're awake all the time and that they remember exactly what they felt, what they thought, and what they did. Now, it's easy for us to see that people are like that. It's a little more difficult to see that we are like that. But it's not impossible. Being able to see that people are like that is a step toward seeing that you're like that if you can begin to observe yourself. It's true that not many people really care to observe themselves. And why would they? Why should they? As we've just discovered or as we've just related, a look at the world convinces us that people are certain that they're awake all the time. And so why then, if people are awake all the time, would they want to observe themselves? Clearly, they already know themselves. They're already fully conscious, fully aware. And the only thing wrong in the world at all is with other people who are not like them. So the memory is the most overused, faulty faculty that we possess. The truth is, we remember nothing at all because what we do remember is completely wrong. Now, that is a bitter pill to swallow. That's some tough medicine. What do you mean? Nothing that I remember is right. It's all wrong. Well, that's exactly what I mean. Now, this isn't James Parkinson saying this. This is exactly what esoteric teachings have been teaching for thousands of years. The memory is a faulty faculty with us, and we don't remember anything at all. It would be better for us to say, I don't remember anything, than it would for us to say that we remember something and have it be completely wrong. Part of the work of esoteric teachings is to educate this faulty faculty of memory. We know that we have the first education, that is, the education that we get in life. We grow up with people, whoever they are, caregivers, who, peers, siblings, whoever they are. We grow up with these people and we are educated by them. 
And it's not a formal education, although there is formal education involved. But it's not necessarily a formal education. Everyone gets this first education, and they get it by imitation. They get it by osmosis, by being around sleeping people. We are put to sleep. And so this is part of the first education that builds the acquired self, which in the fourth way is called the false personality. In many other teachings is called the ego. And it's this whole idea of separateness, this whole idea of individuality, apart from all other beings. And it develops a certain kind of wrongness about it. And part of that wrongness, or a huge part of that wrongness, is linked up with this idea of judgment. And this idea of judgment is linked up with this faulty faculty of memory. One of the phenomena that still surprises me after all these years is what I call What have you done for me lately? It's amazing to me. I was thinking about this on the way over in the car. I was thinking for almost six years, for five and a half years now, we have been giving away podcasts, thousands of hours, work of teaching, of experience, put into this and given away. I was thinking about someone who wrote to me and was upset with me because I don't know why. And I thought, well, what is this about? I feel like I know you through the podcasts. And I don't think you should do this, and I don't think you should do that. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to say these things. It's like, wait a second. I've given you this. Take it or leave it. No one's twisting your arm. No one is making you listen to this. This is something that you have to go and seek out. You have to run the gauntlet to find it. And then when you do find it, you're the one who chooses to listen to it. And then you want to blame me for what you heard. Not what I said, but what you heard. Because you're so absolutely certain that your faulty faculty of memory heard exactly this, felt exactly that, thought precisely this. And it just is a really unreliable crutch. The memory is a really unreliable crutch. So I was thinking, it just still surprises me. Yes, I know you've given 282 podcasts or... 600 or 500 or whatever you know it is it's cl- close to 600 i know you've given all that but what have you done for me lately and that was last week but what have you done for me now you know what are you giving me now how are you helping me now what is it you're doing for me now think about it if you do something for someone and they're pleased then nothing happens for a while let's say you don't see them so you don't really do anything else for them and then you do something for them again a little bit later and again they're pleased But between those times of you doing something for them, they forget. It's like, well, what have you done for me lately? It's like that. You surely had this experience in your life where people forget who you are if you're not constantly reminding them by encouraging them and giving them something. This is the sign of a faulty faculty. It's a weak memory that must receive constant encouragement. You forget what your parents did for you. You forget what your brother did for you. You forget what your sister did for you. You forget what your neighbor did for you. You forget what these people did for you because you have this faulty faculty of memory and it's constantly got to be refreshed. Morris Nichols said, some people remember very well when they've received benefit from someone else, but in others, the memory, a little tiny cloud surrounding their tiny consciousness peters out very quickly. And everything has to be done again in order to restore the feeling of confidence. 
how many people have you known or how much have you seen this in yourself that no matter what you do, unless you're doing it right now, it's not enough, it's not acceptable. I've seen this happen so often that I should think I'd never be surprised by it again. Some folks have very long memories and others have shorter ones. You can see this in just a handful of people that you may know in the world, that some of them have a very long memory. Some people have very short memories. Unfortunately, the majority of people with long memories have long negative memories. It's not like they remember the good things. They remember the bad things. I remember a teacher that I had very early on was probably my first official teacher, meaning the first one that I knew like, I accepted, okay, this is my teacher. And I had teachers before that, but I was too dumb to know it. But this one I accepted as my teacher. He introduced me to another teacher. So he was my main teacher for well over a year. And we were very close. And I spent a lot of time with him. And he one time gave a talk that I still remember about having a good forgettery, that it was often more important what we forgot than what we remembered. And it was pretty much based on this idea that people with long memories usually have a long negative memory. For most people, hateful feelings of revenge are remembered far longer than pleasant things. If somebody did you wrong or you think somebody did you wrong or you remember that somebody did you wrong or you felt that somebody did you wrong, which of course is all internal considering, then that will stay with you much, much longer than a pleasant feeling of something someone did for you. Now, I know it's kind of sad when you think about it, but you have to take a look at it. Of course, you don't have to take a look at it, but it's a good idea to take a look at it if you wish to develop. I mean, if you really want to see what it is that's messing up your life, then you're going to have to look. Just You're going to have to pop the hood, and you're going to have to look under there. Well, of course, if you pop the hood on your car now and you look under there, you go, huh? Well, well nothing makes any sense anymore. Back in the 50s and the 60s, pop the hood on a car and there was an engine under there and a carburetor and, and an air cleaner and a distributor, you know, and there were spark plugs and spark plug wires and, and heads and there were all these things that you understood. You could see there was a fan, there was a fan belt and, you know, you looked at all that stuff and you said, well, there it is. And if something was broken, you could see that it was broken. Now you pop the hood and there's this nothing, just this big thing of metal shielding everything. And then there's a place where you can plug a computer in to tell you what's wrong with it. And, of course, you don't have the plug and you don't have the computer, so you don't know. We're like that. We look under the hood of ourselves and it's like, huh? What? None of this makes any sense. And so we need to be trained and shown and guided and taught how to look, what to look for, where to look. Connie asks me every time she goes on a trip, she says, well, will you check my oil and water? Like, how could this be such a difficult thing? Most people know that if you want to check the oil in a car, you just get hold of the dipstick and you pull it out. And you, before you have the car turned off and sitting level, you pull the dipstick out and you, you have a, a towel or a cloth or something, you know, and you wipe it off and then you put it back in and, you, and then you pull it out and you look at it and you see, and it will tell you how much oil is in the crankcase. Now, that doesn't take a long time, but finding the dipstick can take a half an hour anymore. It's like, why would they hide that? And there's just no room for anything anymore. You look under the hood and it's like, huh? So 
we need to be shown. So you, you pull out the manual and it says, okay, you, you go here, go there, look here, look there. You know, if you want to check the water, you have to go. You don't go to the radiator, you go over here to this other thing. Or you don't go to this other thing, you go over here. And I end up checking the windshield washing fluid, you know. It's like, that's well, okay, that's not the radiator. But there's all this. Well, we're much more complex than that. It's like the manual of your car. You buy a new car and the first thing you do, I know all of you. The first thing you do, you don't even take the keys to the car. You sit down right there in the office before you drive off the lot and you read the manual from the front to the back. And then you do what it says. You go out and you turn on the left indicator and you walk all around the car and you check and make sure the left indicator is blinking up front. And, and the, right? And then you turn on the right indicator and then you turn on the safety and then you check the brakes and you check the mirror and you check the mirrors over here. You do all that stuff and you check the oil and you check the air and the tires too because all of that is in the manual. I know, I've read mine. So all of that is in the manual. We don't do that. And we wonder why we don't know ourselves. It's because we don't make the effort to observe ourselves any more than we make the effort to read the manual to understand how to work the car in order to be safe, in order to arrive alive. The point is that to see our lives through this faulty faculty is a complete distortion of life. Not only that, but it's a huge waste of force. You only have a certain amount of force. You only have a certain amount of life. There are just so many breaths that you're going to take in this life. From the time you're born to the time you die, your breaths are numbered. I don't know what the number is, and you don't know what the number is. But when you're done, you're done. When you breathed your last, you have breathed your last. You will no longer be in this body. You will die. You will cease to have a physical body that you can navigate through this physical world with. And that's that. So there's a limited amount of force, a limited amount of life, a limited amount of breath that you have. And you have a job to do. And your job is to develop, to continue to develop yourself, to pick up and finish off where you were left off. So you were put here, like planted like a seed. And now your job is to grow and to develop and to bear fruit. That's your job. That is your purpose. And part of doing that is to know yourself and to know how to develop. And we do that about as well as we read the manual for the car. And then we wonder, well, why is my life not working out right? Why are all these people so mean? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why didn't I get what I wanted? Why am I sick? Why, 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 why? When the answers are all in the manual that we won't read. Why don't we read it? Well, we already know everything. Who's going to tell us anything? We already imagine, like all the other people that we observed in the world, a quick look at the world convinces us people are certain they're awake all the time, remember exactly what they felt, thought, and did. Remember that? Well, we're people. We're in the world, and we're people. So yes, I do circle the target before I go for the bullseye, because we won't take a direct hit. We have to ease on up to it. We won't look at ourselves directly. We want to look at ourselves as a peripheral view. We just kind of want to look at ourselves out of the corner of our eye. We don't want to look directly because we don't want to see what's there. And we don't want to see what's there because we know deep down inside that something's wrong. We spend all of our time, all of our energy, all of our force looking at other people to make sure that we know what's wrong with them. And that keeps us from ever looking at ourselves to find out what's wrong with us what is not functioning properly. And that's really what a faulty faculty is. 
It's a faculty, a mental or physical power, that's working badly or unreliably because of imperfections. I would change that probably because of imperfections. I would say because it's dirty, because it's clogged up, because it's jammed up, it's not working properly because it's not connected properly. So what is it? Why is it that everything is so completely distorted in life? And we keep on wasting force by looking through this distorted faculty. The problem is what we remember is shaded and distorted by our emotional state. When people are emotional, they remember things differently than when they're clear and objective. And when I say emotional, I don't mean positive emotions. People don't have positive emotions. Not people down here with us. The emotions that we have are negative emotions. Either you accept this, you have seen this, you accept this as a fact, or you have yet to find this out. This is not negotiable. See, this is not a negotiable truth any more than your death is negotiable. You're going to die. It's not negotiable. Okay, You're not going to be able to talk your way out of it. You're not going to be able to buy your way out of it. You're not going to be able to eat your way out of it. There's nothing that you can do to keep it from happening. It's going to happen. It always happens to everyone. And it's going to happen to you. Now, the only recourse you have is denial. You can live your life as if you're never going to die, which is pretty much what you've done and pretty much what everyone on this planet is doing. That's why it's such a great gift to know the hour of your death because then you get busy. You start to do what really matters. You start to drop all the peripheral garbage that doesn't matter, the waste of force, life, energy, time. You drop it all. It's like Gurdjieff's final hour talk. He said, if you know you're going to die, you know the hour, you know you've got one hour left, every second of that hour is going to be precious to you. And to be able to live your life now that way, we can't even imagine that. And it's because we don't do that exercise. He said he devoted four hours a day to that exercise. Well, that doesn't mean he sat around and did nothing else. And people think, I don't have four hours to do that. Yes, you do. You have 24 hours in a day. Two and a half of those hours, you're supposed to be meditating. That's your 10% tithe on the day. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Just to stay even. That's not even to burn off the garbage that you've collected in life. That's just to stay even. That's just to stay clean of this 24 hours. That's to not have more clinging to you in this 24-hour period. 2.4 hours meditation. Real meditation. Not sitting around thinking about how somebody did you wrong or how you need to get even or ain't it awful or what am I going to do when I finish this meditation? You know, and gee, I really want to watch that television program and darn, I hope I'm done meditating before that comes on and did I turn the TiVo thing on or whatever? You know, am I recording that so that I can see it afterwards? So what we remember is shaded, distorted by our emotional state. Our emotions are almost always negative when it comes to people. Let's say that all your emotions aren't negative. Let's say you have emotions that are just nothing. Now, that's a lie. But it's a lie we like to tell ourselves. It's a pleasant lie. Well, this isn't a negative emotion. This isn't a positive emotion. This isn't a real emotion. This is just like a neutral emotion. No, we don't have any neutral emotions. A neutral emotion is a negative emotion looking for a place to light. That's what a neutral emotion is. A neutral emotion is a negative emotion looking for something to attach itself to. Memorizing the multiplication table without distortion is something that's pretty normal. Most people can memorize the times tables without a lot of distortion, except for 7 times 8. 7 times 8 
in my case, is connected with a negative emotional experience in seventh grade when I was standing at the board and I was asked to write on the board seven times eight. And I could not, for the life of me, remember what seven times eight was. And basically, the teacher didn't have all of the wonderful skills they have today, and she ridiculed me in front of the class. And that emotionally was noxious to me. I remember feeling awful, just feeling really awful. And I did finally learn seven times eight, and I learned the seven times tables because I put so much effort into that. But still to this day, I have trouble remembering math because of this faulty faculty, because the emotional impact of that experience distorted my view of math and made me really dislike math and numbers. It's funny because people who know me say, well, you would be so good at math. And I think, well, maybe I would if I could see through this warped, distorted memory. Naturally, the emotions that distort what the memory should be, the memory should be like a mirror. It should be just like a clear, clean, perfect mirror that distorts nothing. But the emotions that distort that mirror so that it's not that, so that the memory is not that, are self-emotions. Who was I concerned with when I was being ridiculed by my seventh grade teacher? I was concerned with what she thought, what the class thought, what my father thought, what other people would think, even what I would think about me. You stupid idiot, you can't remember seven times eight. You know, what's wrong with you? Blah, 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 blah. Now, everyone has some kind of experience like this. It may not be with math. It may be with words. It doesn't matter what it is. It may be with driving a car, flying an airplane, flying a kite, the way you walk, the way you cut your hair, the way you... Whatever. There's something where everyone has this touchstone, this base, where they can look back and see how their emotions really distorted their ability to remember something clearly, to remember something as it was. All they remember is what they felt, how they felt. They only remember themselves, and they see everything that happened through that. That's what I mean by the self-emotions, distorting this mirror memory, this perfection, that this clearness, this clarity that it should be and could be. How is it that after two thousand years of Christianity, the Western world is almost entirely unable to reach real external considering. Why? Two thousand years of teaching. The dominant religion of Western man is Christianity. There is hardly anybody in the West who hasn't heard, love your neighbor as yourself. Why is it that we are almost completely unable to reach real external considering about other people? Why can't we love our neighbors as ourselves? What stands in the way are the self-emotions. What are the self-emotions? Well, feeling you're always right. That's one of the self-emotions. We'll call that self-righteousness because it's feeling you're always right. Self-admiration. Well, I'm doing a good job. I'm really trying hard. My neighbor doesn't even come here. My neighbor doesn't even do anything like this. My neighbor's over there drinking beer and smoking cigarettes and playing pool right now. He's not trying to develop himself. Or my neighbor's out robbing the neighbor next door. So I'm really much better than him. Self-admiration. Self-esteem. How about self-worship? Or self-complacency? I'm okay. You know, it's like, I'm okay. I'm not a bad guy. I'm okay. Or how about self-meritoriousness? Look at all the things I do. You know, look at all I do. I do so much. Thank God I'm not like him. Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like her. That's self-meritoriousness. That's self-emotions. Thank God I'm not like them. Why we live in a cloud of self-liking 
is because we'd go mad without it. We would, if you didn't have this cloud of self-liking surrounding you, you would start to see what you really like. If you could see what you were really like without self-justification, you'd go crazy. That's what this work teaches. Without buffers, you would go insane. So that's why it has to be seen little by little. That's why the work takes you in little by little. People who go in too fast, see too much too fast, and can't justify it, they really go off their rocker. They become very, very negative. And the only thing to do is either get away from the work, which they do, they all do, and then if it keeps on hounding you, if it got inside of you, then you have to attack wherever it is it came from. You have to, what do they call it in court? You have to discredit the witness. You have to find something wrong with the witness. Anything. Anything at all. Well, he plucks his eyebrows, and men shouldn't do that. So that's what's wrong with that witness. So anything he says is not credible. Anything he does is not credible. Because he plucks his eyebrows, and men shouldn't do that. Stuff like that. So these are the self-emotions that make it possible for us to like ourselves, even when we know deep down that we've behaved poorly at best, and viciously at worst. Think about some of the things that you have done. Think about some of the thoughts that you have entertained in your mind. Think about how you see other people. Think about this incredible arrogance that somehow makes us feel that we have the right to judge another human being. Like, we have this all-knowing, perfect view of their life. We know everything about them. The American Indian was it the American Native Indians who said, don't judge a man unless you walk a mile in his moccasins. In other words, don't judge a man. Now, that's not Christian. That's just good sense. And yet we still don't know it. We still can't get our minds around it, and we still can't apply it to ourselves because we live in a cloud of self-liking, self-emotions, so that we can't see what we have done, what we are like. It doesn't matter what we felt, said, or did. It doesn't matter. Self-justifying distorts our memory so that we can still like ourselves and find it in us to hate someone else for the exact same thing that we did. Because we forget it. Well, I, I didn't do that. And besides, when I did that, it was because they made me do that. Remember when the Sopranos were on TV? And I watched the Sopranos thing one time and they were killing this guy. One of their friends, one of their friends, like for 20 years, they were killing him. They were like, see what you're making me do? Like, it's all your fault. You're making me kill you. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a picture of us. This is a picture of what we are like. But we don't see that. We see, no, they're like that. The Sopranos are like that. The mob is like that. Those people are like that. That other person is like that, but not me. What I'm doing is right. Self-emotions are like pouring honey in the gears of a fine watch. What you end up with is a faulty timepiece, a faulty faculty. A faulty timepiece is worse than no timepiece at all. Buffers prevent us from seeing we were wrong, just so that we can continue to like ourselves. This work is difficult because you're not going to like what you find. You're just not going to like it. When you find out some things about yourself this work directs you to see, you're not going to like it. That's going to be your first challenge. Then remembering that is going to be your next challenge. Not justifying it away, that's your next challenge, remembering it. The reason this work will never be popular is because it shows us our contradictions. But it only shows us our contradictions if we apply this work to our being. There is the majority of people who can do this work and not be offended by it. Not be offended by it at all. 
And the reason they won't be offended by it, and the reason it will be popular for them, is because they're not applying it to their being. They're applying it to someone else. It's also the reason so few people apply it to their being. Because we don't want to see our contradictions. Self-observation is the tool talked about most and used the least. We talk about self-observation more than anything else. And it's the one thing we do less than anything else. We do not observe ourselves. Unless you consider clubbing another with the idea of self-observation using it. So if you consider clubbing someone else with the idea of self-observation, if you consider that using it, well, then we use it. Self-observation disturbs self-liking. It really annoys it. It irritates it. And we can't grow spiritually without disturbing self-liking. This is the rub. You're not going to grow spiritually unless you can disturb self-liking. Unless you can not like yourself so much. Does this sound insane to you? Why should I not like myself? I mean, I've spent my whole life trying to find something about myself to like. Why would I now want to not like myself? Well, to develop spiritually. That's why. To get away from the false personality. That's why. To make the false personality passive, which always wants to like itself. Self-observation makes people uneasy. And that's not easily tolerated by the false personality. It doesn't like to feel uneasy. A tiny bit, just a tiny bit of proper self-observation over a short period is disturbing enough to put us at the throat of another person. We see ourselves, and the first person who comes around, once we're disturbed about ourselves and we stop liking ourselves so much, the first person who comes around and says anything is the target. They're going to catch it if you're in the kitchen and nothing's going right. And your husband or your wife comes in and they say something and you... Or the kid comes in... You're edgy because you don't like that things aren't going well. And there's nobody there to blame. It's just you. And so the minute somebody comes into your environment that you can blame, you instantly lash out at them. You instantly begin to blame them. It's their fault that you can't find this. It's their fault that this isn't in the right place. It's their fault you can't get the lid off. It's their fault you burned this. It's their fault you burned yourself. See what you made me do? How many times have you done that? We relish feeling wronged. We just love it. What is juicier? What is tastier? What is better than feeling wronged? See what you've done to me? You really, really hurt me. We wallow in this petty, negative self-emotion. It's astounding when you think about it. It gives us such license to wallow in negative emotions, feeling wronged. And let's say you have been wronged. Let's say someone actually does wrong you. Let's say somebody steals something from you. Now you have the right to be negative. Now you have the right to prosecute, persecute, and wallow in negative self-emotions forever. When can they ever pay you back? Never. You will never accept it. You will never accept it. You will take payment, but you will never accept it because you'll never give up the upper hand of being able to have something over another human being that you can feel negative about. It'll be in your little toolbox. You'll have a very long negative memory about that. And trust me when I say this is a faulty faculty. A long negative memory like that does nothing for your spiritual development. Nothing at all. The power of conscious memory is unleashed only through consciously observing yourself and remembering what you observe. Look, it doesn't do any good to look in the mirror, turn away and forget what you saw. You must be able to remember it. Well, it's not fun to remember some of the things we see. We have to value spiritual development more than we value our self-worship, our self-admiration, our self-emotions. 
Sadly, some folks can't do this. They just cannot. Some because they don't want to. And others because they have no power to see themselves at all. No power at all. It takes force. And all of their force has been squandered in negative emotions. And they don't have any left to look at themselves. So they're stuck. They can't see themselves at all. They have no power, no force. And no valuation. They can see others, but they can't see themselves internally. Oh, yeah, anybody can look in a mirror and say, oh, well, yeah, my hair's messed up, or I need this, or my makeup, or blah, 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 blah. I have a wrinkled hair that I didn't have there. Oh, I have gray hair here that I didn't have. Whatever. I need a color. I need this. I need that. Esoteric is internal, and it begins with observing oneself as directed, not as you see fit, as directed. It always involves certain efforts and never happens mechanically. It doesn't just happen. People just don't observe themselves mechanically. There is certain effort that has to be made. The long journey to objective consciousness begins with self-observation and remembering what we observe. So our faulty faculty of memory is saturated right now with self-emotions. It's like a sponge that's got to be wrung out over a long period of time until we begin to get flashes of objective consciousness. Just flashes of it, like a strobe light, but not a strobe light that blinks regularly. A strobe light that blinks once a month or once a week. We don't get very many flashes of objective consciousness, and the reason is we don't work very hard at wringing out self-emotions from our memory, from our faulty faculty. Only when this begins do we start to see life without distortion, as things really are. Only then do we begin to see our own illusions. We can't have objective memory as long as we are awash in self-emotions. The emotional center must be purified. The self-emotions must be wrung out of memory. You've got to develop a better forgettery and a good memory about what you see when you observe yourself. Because I promise you, when you truly, genuinely observe yourself and see what's really there, what you will have, the hallmark of your being will be compassion and mercy, not judgment and justice. You might have missed and matter, but